God's word for this week is uh, 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 8. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in the house of Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness of that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him by name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on feast day. Please please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and your son David. Some events are so monumental and momentous um, they can only really be stated in these stark facts. Um, we have one of those this morning in First Samuel 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died. It's like the New York Times headline on uh, September 12, 2001. America attacked, right? Or uh, the Charlotte Observer uh, August uh, 1945, the end of World War II, it just simply said, peace. And then, it's over. <laughs> um, so, it's a watershed moment, and it's hard to uh, overestimate or overstate the significance of those three short words, now Samuel died. Um, as we've been looking at the uh, life of David and the whole uh, ministry of Samuel through this book, um, Samuel is just an immensely important figure in the life of Israel, um, almost to the level of Moses in his importance. He's a great leader and critical in the life of uh, the spiritual and national life of Israel. He united Israel, not simply in the mode of the judges that went before him, um, but Samuel was a new kind of figure in the life of Israel, and uh, he took the office of national prophet, something that continued all the way to the life of John the Baptist. Samuel was the first national prophet, and he led and he united the nation 
uh, in spiritual unity and indeed renewal. Um, And as a prophet, he really served as kind of a national conscience, pointing God's people towards God's law, God's covenants, Uh, reminding them, warning them, bringing them back, renewing them in the covenant faithfulness of God. He's an awesome, awesome man. So we read of his death in these three short words, and we read that all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah, and it's over (laughs) for Samuel. What of David? What of David? Where is David in this moment? Um, Well, David continues to be a hunted man. It's been his life and his experience for the past couple of years. Uh, Given that he's a hunted man, I I don't know whether he went to this funeral in Ramah. Maybe there was some kind of amnesty that was uh, declared and, and people could come, but we don't know. What we do know is that the, the, the text very quickly says, David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Whatever happened in the funeral of Samuel, David very clearly understood that something radical had changed in the life of Israel and probably in his relationship with Saul. Could it get any worse? I don't know. David didn't know, and he wasn't about to find out. So he went running south to Paran. Now, uh, where is Paran? Paran is, uh, if you picture in your mind, I, if I knew anything about PowerPoint, I would have put a map up there. Um, but you can look in your Bibles and, and see a, a map in the back, and you'll see at the very bottom of Israel, there is uh, the, the Gulf of Aqaba. It's a f- finger of the Red Sea that comes up. Um, this area is on the eastern side of that gulf. In, in modern-day part of Jordan there and then down into Saudi Arabia. I don't know how far down he went. But this wilderness of Paran, you know, it just says that on the page, the wilderness of Paran. But look it up. Google this place. It's, it's incredible. To say Paran was desolate is like saying water's wet. <laughs> it is unbelievably barren devoid of anything green, more like a moonscape than something on earth. Uh, And it's not the place you go, much less lead 600 people with you. Um, You think about the realities of the wilderness of Paran, you have to ask, why on earth would David do such a thing? And his thoughts aren't recorded, but his willingness, perhaps his need to take 600 people into Paran might tell us all that we need to know about the desperation and probably the despair of David's heart and mind. Can you feel the crush that David is in? You know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, he had this strange experience of being anointed by Samuel. You know? This clear symbol that he's God's chosen to be the king of Israel— but he was just a kid, you know? And, and you got to imagine him looking back. Well, what, what in the world did all that mean? And now Samuel is dead. And, you know, the only thing that that anointing has gotten me is 
bringing me into proximity with this psychopath, you know? There's just guys crazy, and I'm just sick of being hunted. And you can just imagine David's mind. And there he is in the wilderness of Paran. And David's despair in, in driving him there, um, it's incredible. What does something like that do to you, you know, to live in that kind of long-term stress, unresolved struggle, perpetual, perpetuating chaos? It, that, that does things to people. Some of you know what I'm talking about. It, it puts mileage on you. <laughs> David had some miles on him. This kind of stuff wears grooves in you. It leaves scar tissue. It distorts your thinking and your processing and your reaction to things and responses to people. Stress messes you up. Conflict screws with your mind. And this period of David's life, in fact, all of David's life, you know, he never has this kind of stability. He's up and down. The experiences of his life never resolve into something that's like, it's all good now. No, his life is uh, struggle. We see swings in his life spiritually between great faith and great failure. You know, David is not a perfect guy. David is not perfect, and he's not in here because he's perfect. We see incredible restraint in David. I mean, look at the character of him last week in restraining himself from killing Saul in the cave. Incredible. But then he has seasons of failure and faltering, and and even as we'll see today, almost foolishness. Sound familiar? We should all resonate with that no matter how uncomfortably. It's real. David's life here is not a hagiography, some heroic saint story of a super spiritual, superhuman person, vanquishing all his foes, feeling no fear, finishing every fight unstained, positive, smiley attitude, perfect hair, you know? Sometimes that's our Sunday school vision of David. It's not the vision here. David is about to do something really stupid. His faith is failing and faltering, and it's about to mess him up. You know, I don't know anybody uh, like that picture-perfect image (laughs) in Scripture, you know, except one, right? The son of David. But David isn't him. We don't look to David and and the the heroes of the Bible for their perfection. The Scriptures present David as very human, beautifully human, sometimes tragically human, but ultimately very human. The Scriptures are written for our instruction, and the greatest instruction that we can receive is to see life lived, not in some glorified, unreal, heroic image. That's idolatry. But rather to see a life lived in dependence upon God. David is at his greatest when he is most human. 
That is to say, when he's at his most dependent. David is at his greatest when he is his most dependent, and so are we. David's at his greatest when his strength, when he is strong in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might, when in his weakness David casts himself and orients, restrains, directs all of his thinking, controls all of his thinking in light of the covenant faithfulness of God. It's when David is at his greatest. That's the greatest psalms that he has, right? Singing, clinging to the steadfast love of the Lord, the covenant, unfailing faithfulness of God. In the New Testament, we call that grace. God's disposition towards us, God's covenant faithfulness and promises towards us, His unshaking, unbendable, unfailing holding of us in His hand, carrying us through whatever. David is at his best when he is resting and clinging to that truth, when he's dependent upon God in all that he is and all that God has promised. And, God, and David was given great promises, wasn't he? Right? As a Jew, he lived under the covenant promises of God, God's faithfulness to his nation, to his people. He lived in the covenant land, right? And like every other Jew, he could expect that God would keep the rest of that promise to make their nation great and make it a blessing to all of the nations, the nation through whom this seed promise would come. And we read further on in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God in His amazing grace brought David into that line and indeed gave David a covenant, (laughs) right? These are the big, big picture things of David's life. You know, and, and And like all of us, he faltered between seeing them and believing them and then just collapsing into the the crisis of his moment, you know? What we have here is, is that moment. David is not thinking about the great covenant promises of God and his faithfulness and the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, you know, he leads me into spring. Yeah, I'm in the desert, I'm in Paran. You know, it's a wasteland and psychos across the river and he's trying to kill me again, you know? And David is messed up. And as we're going to see, God is so faithful to him. And he's faithful to David through a person, through a woman. It's awesome. It's awesome. So, you know, David has a real logistical problem here. He's in the middle of Paran. He's also faltering in his faith. And then he hears through the grapevine, no grapes in Paran, but uh, he hears through the grapevine that, hey, Nabal is shearing sheep. Now, who is Nabal? We read this morning who Nabal was, a rich man and a rich fool. (laughs) A rich fool. David sent to Nabal. Uh, This is a very practical solution to a very immediate problem. We read how he sent messengers to Nabal, and it's a time of fruitfulness. It's the time of sheep shearing. That's like harvest 
Uh, Sheep shearing for shepherds is like harvest for farmers. It's a time when the bounty of God is on display, or it should be. It's an increase that, that you yourself can't make happen. Do you ever think about that? Do you guys garden? You know? Gardening is hard. You, you, you do some work, but, the, but then this crazy thing happens. The seeds that you throw in the ground come up like a cucumber. How's that? That's God's doing, you know? And you just stand there and you think, wow, look at the faithfulness. Look at the blessing of God. That, that should have been Nabal's mindset because he was very rich. And this year he got richer. It's a time of increase. Skinny sheep went out into the desert. They came back fat, buried in a mountain of wool. It's a time to be profoundly thankful for what you had very little to do with. So David sends his uh, servants at this time, and, and you got to know that what he was doing was completely culturally appropriate. Um, David, first of all, was not extorting anybody, right? Sending 10 men was because he expected them, <laughs> he expected it to take 10 men to bring it all back, you know? David was not begging he was not begging. He's not asking for a handout or charity. It's more like something, we don't really have an analogy in our culture, but it's something like a share of the profits for which he worked to increase. A share that, though it belonged to Nabal, David could rightly expect to be gifted. Mainly, it's a question of honor. This is an honor culture. It's a question of honor. Honoring and acknowledging David and his men for the real work that they did and, and the benefits that it reaped to Nabal. Nabal's flocks increased. In fact, it says nothing was lost. That's not something shepherds say. <laughs> okay? You send sheep out into the wilderness, you're going to lose a few. You may even have a few stolen and when there's a roving band of, of armed, militarized guys cruising around, yeah, you can expect to lose some sheep. That would be normal. Not this year. They lost nothing. On top of the natural increase of the sheep just doing their thing, right? Nabal is protected. <laughs> He's blessed by David, and he should honor David for that. But sadly, that's not his response, and more importantly, that's not Nabal's disposition to honor or even acknowledge those who had benefited him. Look at what he says in verse 9. David's men come to him, and Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Now listen, listen to how many I's and me's are here. Listen to this. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I don't know where? So David's men turned away and came back to the hills and told him all this. 
Wow. One thing that is hidden from us as, as, as people who don't read Hebrew, and, and myself included, um, Nabal, even in the passage here, it's already announced, fool, 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 idiot, fool, right? Because that's what Nabal means, right? The, the reader here says, um, you know, there was a, a man in Carmel and his name was Fool, the Hebrew readers already clued into what this guy is like, and then they see him fleshed out. Yeah, he's being incredibly foolish. True to his name, a fool of epic proportions. We go on to learn that this was not a one-time foolishness, but it's in fact the very character and the shameful pattern of his entire life and his relationships to others. And setting aside the question of why a parent would name their child such a thing, uh, we realize that, uh, we, we need to realize that as far as the Bible is concerned, fool does not mean silly, silly playfulness, joker. When the Bible speaks of a fool and foolishness, really, as uh, Dan Doriani uh, Writes, he said, in the Hebrew language, in biblical usage, the fool is an atheistic materialist, a theist without God. The fool says in his heart, No God. There is no God, or no God, depending on how you want to read it. A theist in biblical language, it's in contrast to our modern definition. It's not primarily a person who argues against God's existence, but more broadly, one who lives without reference to God. Lives as if God isn't there. No moral restraint in the light of God's holy character. No living your life as before God as to, whom one, who, to, as one to whom we're accountable and answerable. And that distinction is important because it's entirely possible to believe in God as a fact and live as if he isn't there. Practical atheists. Don't ever be fooled. I believe in God, you know? Yeah. Duh. (laughs) It does not mean anything about your life. The world is full of practical atheists. And Christians, too, we can often continue as if there is no God. That's a whole sermon in itself. Sinful habits, patterns of thinking, they're not measured, brought into captivity to Christ. We can even carve out areas that we actively resist His rule or reign or or pretend that we hide them from them. Man, there's so much there. Don't play the fool. But such was the life of Nabal, self-referencing, autonomous, autonomous. You know what that word means? Auto, (laughs) self, namas, law, self-law. I'm the law. I'm autonomous. (laughs) There's no law over me, right? I'm my own law. That's Nabal, a fool by the biblical measure, unhumble, unthankful, fool. It's kind of pathetic, isn't it? I mean, I just see him there like, I, mine, mine, mine. It's like Gollum, you know? 
from Lord of the Rings, my, 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 you know, the precious. I can't do a good Gollum voice. I won't try, but that, that's what's in my mind. That, that, that's, that's what greediness and sin and self, it just turns you in. Tolkien gave us a great picture of the destructiveness of that. What does that tell you about Nabal's view of his possessions and, more importantly, of himself? He's ruled. He lives as if there's no God. He's not just intent on hoarding his bounty, but he, he seems intent on shaming David to an incredible degree commentators and those familiar with this Near East culture point out it's hard to think of a way that he could have shamed David more than what he said, short of physically, physically, publicly abusing David or his servants. He did everything short of that. You know, who is David? Well, you know who he is. Everybody in Israel knows who he is. Don't kid yourself. He even knows him as the son of Jesse. Good grief. And Nabal knew that he was beholden to David, right? And instead of humbling himself, he turns it around and bites at him. What a fool. Well, it's not exactly the answer that uh, David was expecting from Nabal. Verse 13 records his response. Can you imagine being the one who had to tell David what Nabal said? <laughs> Not an envious messenger position, but David immediately, everybody, swords on. And nobody in that camp <laughs> wondered what was going to happen next. And you know what? People in Nabal's camp knew what was going to happen next, right? Right? They knew what was going to happen next. Look what happens. Verse 14, one of the young men told Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We didn't miss anything while we were with them in the field, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this. Know this, Abigail. Know what happened and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master. Oh, yeah. And against all his house. And he is such a worthless man, you can't even speak to him. Something tells me this is not the first time that Abigail has been called on, right? to fix something that Nabal was about to destroy, right? This servant knew exactly where to go with the problem. I think everybody in that house knew where to go with that problem. And Abigail, what an awesome woman. This woman is incredible, so wise, so graceful, Amazing woman. So much to learn from her. Before we get to her, look at David's character that's reported here again. 
David's personal integrity extended to the behavior of his men. This tells me David was a solid leader, both by command and I'm sure by his own behavior. David made clear that unlike the normal pattern, David's men were not going to exploit, extort their neighbors, take their sheep. In fact, they were going to bless them. That's awesome. David's integrity and his blessing of others didn't begin when he became king. They started as a pattern of his life long before that. So, Abigail. Now, we might wonder about a wife who would essentially abscond away with the entire feast, pack it up and send it away. Um, But as... uh, Walter Brueggemann points out, I love this, wifely submission does not extend to engaging in suicidal delay. <laughs> She's such a, he's such a fool, no one can speak to him. And, Nabal, and, and Abigail knows that better than anybody. Listen, don't kid yourself. She knew that their entire camp was going to be destroyed. (laughs) It was suicide to delay. Someone better act quick because David surely would. (laughs) The only one who seems clueless to the danger is Nabal. Everyone else understands that ruthless public humiliation of David and 600 fighting men uh, in the most culturally extreme manner can only mean that very, very bad stuff is about to happen. They are literally in mortal danger. David's been shamed. Evil has been returned for good. And it's like SEAL Team 6 is just launched. It's about to land on Nabal's house. And a whole lot of hurt's going to come down. She grabs whatever is around. (laughs) And she literally takes the feast that was going to go into Nabal's mouth, grabs it, puts it on donkeys, hurry up, quick, let's go. And they ride out we got to meet this guy before he gets there, before he gets here. And she does just that. She rides out with all of this uh, food, riding out to meet them, this, this wise, humble, brave woman. Look out, David. <laughs> you, I think you met your match. Look at verse 23 with me. Abigail saw David. Here he comes, focused, armed, exceedingly dangerous. This is a dangerous, dangerous man. She hurried. She got down off the donkey, fell before David on her face, bowed to the ground, and she said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please, Let your servant speak to your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not, my Lord, regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name. Folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man that my Lord sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord, as Jehovah, that's the covenant name of God, by the way, As the covenant God lives, and as your soul lives, because 
the Lord, the covenant God, has restrained you from blood guilt. I love how she says it ahead of time. The Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal, a fool, an atheistic materialist, but not you, David. Now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to these young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord, the covenant God, will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of Jehovah, the covenant God. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, in the care, awesome, in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord, the Lord, has done to my Lord according to all that is good, all the good that he has spoken concerning you. Remember those promises, David? And he has appointed you prince over Israel. Then my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my servant or with with my Lord, then remember your servant. This woman is awesome. So much to learn from her. We, we, could, we could mine this and milk this. There's more here than what I'm going to say, so you meditate on it. Let me point out a few things. First, notice there's none of this nonsense that passes for apologies in our day. You know, there's no vague mumbling. I, I regret that something happened that might have made you feel uncomfortable. Or the subtle blame shift that we use today. <clears throat> I'm sorry that you were offended. <laughs> no. There is real repentance. Real repentance requires personally acknowledging and owning and confessing real personal guilt. For real personal offense, what I did was actual real sin, me. Look at what she says in verse 24. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Now, that might strike you as very weird. Something of a theatrical performance, even. How can Abigail consider herself guilty for Nabal's asinine, shameful behavior? How, how, how is she saying, upon me? Why is she taking it on herself? Well, there are some cultural issues here for sure, but they're actually not so foreign to us. There's also some really clear, beautiful gospel allusions. Let's, let's look at a few. Abigail is the wife and therefore is a valid representative of the household. In this case, she doesn't have to speak for her husband. His guilt is his own. But she can properly and publicly acknowledge, and that's what's needed. 
she can properly and publicly acknowledge the guilt of the household in relationship to David. And in doing this, she is able to diffuse the house-on-house wrath. She's able to broach peace. Abigail's acting as a peacemaker. She's inserting herself. Yep, she's inserting herself between two warring parties. One doesn't know he's at war. (laughs) But she does, and she represents that, and she's wise enough to go out and say, I'm going to put myself in between. She is, in a way, an innocent who's taking the place of a guilty man. Sometimes what is most needed is for a person to bravely step in between two warring parties and start a peacemaking process that neither of them is able or willing to do. Secondly, notice that through the entire conversation, and and this is the most important thing of the entire morning, this is the most important thing. Notice, she's continually pointing David back to the Lord. She's provoking his conscience and provoking the Lord's restraining call to bring David back from the brink. And this is not some spiritual manipulation that she's laying on him. She's not spiritually guilt-tripping him. She's reminding him, first of all, of God's righteous standard. She softly but clearly warns David in no uncertain terms that what he is doing, he will regret. And he will regret before the Lord. It's sin. It might be culturally acceptable. It might even be culturally expected. Go defend your honor. But honor killing is murder. Thou shalt not. Right? She doesn't beat around the bush. Blood, guilt, David. (laughs) You'll be bloody and you'll be guilty. Murdering Nabal, thou shalt not. She begins to remind David, this is so beautiful and such a great pattern for us, ourselves, but but also in in our effort to peacemake. Right? Peacemake between disgruntled parties, broken relationships, right? Even as a parent, did you ever think about parenting? You you know, you serve as a peacemaker between God and your child. Isn't that what we're doing in calling our children to repentance? Yes, they've offended me, but, but mostly they've sinned against God. And, and you've got to get this taken care of, right? You, you can't, this is sin. It's crouching at the door and it will kill you, <laughs> right? You're guilty. Now go get forgiven. We act as peacemakers. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing she's doing. And in this whole process, she is subtly but surely turning David, 
not just back from the brink of doing something disastrously bloody, but really, in the light of his whole mental, spiritual framework, turning him back to consider his life in the light of all of the great covenant promises of God. She's reminding him of that. She's steering him away from this immediate crisis and and agitation and anger, furious anger, and turning him and saying, look, look at your life, David. Look what God's called you to do. Don't trash that for this. Wow. That takes wisdom. That takes the Word. She speaks the Word of God to him. Right? She's reminding him of God's covenant promises to him. These plans surely would have destroyed David. And he, you know, if he would have just murdered Nabal in his house, sinful vengeance and murder. And it would set a pattern for how David handled all insults going forward. It promises to be a consuming spiral of never-ending, ever-escalating, clannish blood feuds. It's a common pattern in Oriental monarchies, maybe in all monarchies. That kind of feuding uh, not only creates personal guilt for David, right? You're going to regret this. You're going to be guilty, and you're going to have to live with that, right? But it's a pattern for his whole household, his whole kingdom, And ultimately, as the leader of Israel, it becomes the way that Israel deals with problems. Do you see, like, how amazing Abigail's restraint is here and the implications and the effect of it? It is is just incredible. Look what she was stepping into and what her peacemaking prevented. It it is just mind-blowing. Yes, David needed to be stopped from going and doing something bloody, but his deepest need, his deepest need is to be turned back to the covenant promises of God. You see, unlike Nabal, David is not an atheist. He isn't a fool, but he was living and acting like one there for a while. He stopped living in reference to God in light of his covenant promises, in light of God's holiness. You know, in these moments of despair, the immediate circumstances, as I said, they, they all just crush in, and, and sometimes that's what our whole world becomes. Again, some of you know what I'm talking about. What a grace God's people are for God's people. You know, in that moment, David couldn't see anything else. You cannot count on David, and you can't count on yourself to get perspective in that moment. You can't do it. You won't do it. Your crisis is all you've got. Your anger is all you got. It just The whole world collapses into that. Ever been there? You know what I'm talking about? whether it's a, a personal relationship that's broken and angry, whether it's just a stress of your life, it just it 
collapses you, and we need Abigails. We need these peacemakers, ones who will come to us and know us and warn us and stop us and bend us and redirect us and reorient us towards the bigger pictures, the bigger truths, prevent us from bigger sins. God help us. I love Abigail, and I love Abigail's. David's lost track of where he is in God's plan, and he almost sacrifices it all to off some petty sheep baron on the backside of nowhere. It would have been his legacy for the rest of his life. can see the amazing grace of God in this person of Abigail. Stunning to think how quickly sin can destroy. I believe the scriptures would warn us this morning. Would warn us. Be careful. Be very careful in your despair. Be very careful when you are disgruntled, discouraged. Sin lies crouching at the door, right? And how easy it is for us to do something really stupid. That is not our best decision-making time, is it? Right? Be careful because that, as I said earlier, that, that kind of despair, that kind of stress, that kind of stuff, it, it just messes with you. It does stuff to you. It distorts your perspective of things. Yeah. Yeah, we need to pray that God would give Abigails in our life, people, friends, friends, true brothers, true sisters, spouses, even children, who would step in between us and destruction and say, what are you doing, you know? What are you doing? What are you thinking? Think, man, you know? (laughs) Snap out of it, and here's why. You're going to regret that. And this is not all that there is. God has other plans for you. He has greater promises for you and over you. We need that. Don't depend upon yourself to get that perspective. Commit yourself to other people who can do that, who can be that for you. Well, Look at how David responds. I love Abigail. I love what she does here. Milk it. Meditate on it this week. Look at what David says. It's like somebody slaps him across the face. Verse 32. David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord. I love that. David doesn't see Abigail (laughs) in this. He sees God in this. Boom. Wow. 
Blessed be the Lord. <laughs> wow. God's at work in this moment. God is, wow. Wow. What was I thinking? What was I doing? Wait, where was I? You know? Yeah. Blessed be the covenant God of Israel who sent you. He recognizes the instrumentality, the grace of God in Abigail. Amazing grace in a person who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand, my own strength, my own problem solving, my own solutions. You've kept me from that and pointed me towards God's. How shameful, shameful, shameful would that have been if David just did what every other king did? David is at his greatest when he is most dependent. He's at his greatest when he's most repentant, right? Isn't that what endears us to David in the Psalms? That David repents, that David relents, that David clings to the promises of God, right? Man, there's a whole book of those. Let me read one of them from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, not Paran. Of whom shall I be afraid? The psycho across the river? When evildoers assail me, you've returned evil for good. When evildoers assail me, insult me, to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, my foes, it is they who will stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, though a cheap sheep baron insult me, right? Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me. Further on down in verse 12, give me not up to my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me. They breathe out violence. But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Your confident promises are true, Lord. Wait for the Lord and be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. That's what David needed to hear. Now, sometimes he could sing it. (laughs) And sometimes he totally forgot it. And he needs somebody else to come and grab him. And yet, he's going to sing that again. It's not a one-time deal, right? This doesn't just fix David. Got it. Good. David needs this again and again and again. It's a pattern of his life. It's a pattern of our lives. We need it again and again and again to be brought to repentance. We need the ministry of Abigail's around us. So, 
I trust that the Lord will apply this to our lives this morning. I can't imagine all of the relationships that are represented here. I don't know. But I'm sure that we have some strained ones, right? I'm sure we have, you know, the experience of being turned in on ourselves, right? Despairing in the moment, despairing in what's happening. God help us. You know, look around. (laughs) We're all weak like this. And we can all minister to each other. We can be Abigails one to another. Right? Reminding each other of the goodness of God in the land of the living. Encouraging one another. Wait on the Lord. Wait, don't don't do what you're thinking right now. Don't just, boom, go off on, just wait, chill. God is faithful. He will work. He's going to feed you, David, (laughs) you know. He's going to restore you. You will be king, right? Don't become king like everybody else becomes king. Don't become a Saul, right? Saul's petty. Saul's revengeful. Saul murders people. Don't, Don't do that, right? The grace of God in the people of God. (laughs) Thank God for it. Seek it and be it, right? Takes a little bravery to step in between SEAL Team 6, right? Right? With with a couple donkeys and bread. (laughs) Hey, got some cheese and bread for you. (laughs) It takes guts. She's not entering into some She's not a busybody here. She's trying to save her life. It's amazing. So much to learn. Trust that God would apply that to us this week. But, but don't wait. You know, be quick to repent. Open your eyes and see, wow. Blessed be the Lord who's kept me from doing foolish things. Father in heaven, thank you for your word this morning. We need your truth and your life and your light. We ask that you would correct us, give us hope, strengthen us. Lord, for relationships that would be mended, for the boldness, the bravery to step into situations and become a peacemaker, make us strong, give us eyes to see boldness to act. And Lord, uh, for all of us, as David prayed, keep your servant from presumptuous sin. So easy for us to lose sight of you, to lose sight of who we are in you, and thus do foolish, damaging things. God, in your mercy, by your word, by your Spirit, speaking through your Word, and and as you would give grace, speaking through people to us, Lord, may our eyes be opened and be saved from the foolishness of our own ways and wisdom. God, preserve us. 
and give us testimonies of grace one to another, how you have saved and healed and restored and kept us from blood guilt and foolish actions. Lord, have mercy. Thank you for your word, Lord. Nourish us this week. Help us to meditate upon these things, Lord, that our eyes would be open to your truth and that you would apply it individually to our lives. We trust you for that which is beyond any of us to do. In Jesus' name we pray it all. Amen.